This morning we're going to go into our scripture reading, and it's coming from the book of Ephesians. You can follow along in your Bibles, or you can use the screens, and I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 5 from chapter 2 in the New Living Translation. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our own sinful nature. By our very nature, we are subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, that even though we were dead in our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning to y'all. I've lived in the Northwest for 65 years, as I told you, born in Roseburg, Oregon, but living most of my life in Bellevue. And every winter, all of us lifers in the Northwest, we reach this point that we're in right now, where it's 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, I'm, I'm tempted to can the sermon I was planning and just tell the story of Noah, because that's what I feel like every year when we hit this stretch. But you're a true Northwesterner if you plow on through and soldier on. However, I don't know if you know this, but the Gulf Channel was developed on cable just for people in the Northwest. Yeah, because we want to know that the sun is shining somewhere, and some people I've seen will just turn on the Gulf Channel because everywhere that there's good weather, the people are out playing golf. Why would they sit and watch it on TV? So the Gulf Channel was established for us in the Northwest. So uh, the vitamin D lights are on this morning. We hope that... uh, will give you something spiritually lightening today. Put up the graphic if you would, there it is. Covenant Affirmations, we're in week two of what is a six-week series. Last week we included the little trifold blue folder which is the most concise statement of these six affirmations that frame what holds the Covenant churches together and our leaders together in our cause as mission friends. I also want to point out that if you weren't here last week, those brochures are at the center table of the foyer, and there's also a pamphlet that expands on the shorter definitions that were given in the blue one. So take a look at that if you'd like to do some further study. Last week, we looked at the centrality of the Word of God, and I presented a paradigm, if you'd put the next graphic, of trying to go to the 20,000-foot level of looking at the Bible. What I mean by that is ultimately the story of the Bible from beginning to end is God's salvation story, the green circle there. This is the lens that we look at every part of it. We talked about the micro and the macro. This is the macro view of the scriptures, and it's appropriate, obviously, to do the micro where we go down verse by verse. We'll be doing that this morning. But if we start with the premise that the big picture of the Bible's purpose is God's initiative to tell us the story of salvation, then the logical next step is in the red circle. 
How in the world does this relate to us as individuals? What does God's story of salvation have to do with me? And that really brings us to our topic for today. The next graphic is about new birth. Now, if you've been in the Christian subculture, I call it, because we are definitely a subculture in the Northwest, the affirmation says it's the necessity of new birth. And this term is really foreign outside of birthing hospitals, right? Because we're not talking about physical birth here. In fact, that whole word or the concept of new birth is taken from John chapter 3, as most of you know, one of the most famous chapters in our scriptures, where Jesus is talking to a man named Nicodemus. And he says, truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. That's where the term comes from. And Nicodemus responds in a way that anyone would that was thinking in terms of birth in the physical sense. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now, Again, you may look at that and say, how thick-headed is this guy? I choose to look at it differently. Because if all you have known is physical life, which screams at us every day, we're hungry, we're tired, we need all kinds of things physically, and our body tells us the direction to go, why in the world would we think that Jesus was talking about something different here? But where we're going this morning is new birth is the essence of what we call the gospel. Everyone understands and has biological life. We know what it is to be encapsulated in this physical body that we all have. But Jesus is pointing out something entirely different. And it has to do with the fact that he is the only one that can give life to our spiritual nature. So with that in mind, would you let me open us in prayer? God, as always, the things of the scriptures, the things of the gospel are far beyond our ability to grasp with just our human minds because we think in physical terms. So my prayer is that you'll lift us to an understanding of what happens in all of the spiritual realm, but most of all in each of our own hearts. Soften our spirits to hear your spirit this morning. In the name of Christ, amen. Well, before we look at the biblical view of humanity and human nature, let's just look at a few things that are really common, really, in our culture. Because Christians are, like I said, are the only ones talking about some kind of spiritual new birth. The modern views of human behavior, often one of the main ones is educational. Human behavior can change if we just get the right teaching, if we just get the right knowledge. And knowledge is needed because we're born as, we're born ignorant. 
And so we often hear the politicians saying this about particular societal problems. What do we need? We need more education. So let's put that into the curricula of all of our classes from birth up through college. Another view of human nature that's very common is the psychological. This has been a huge explosion in psychological studies over the last 100 years. And the idea is we can get human beings to change through the right self-help and also through therapies, addiction counseling, and so forth. So it's a psychological view of human, uh, our human behavior, and we can manipulate it in a sense through our psychological and therapeutic methods. Another way is monetary. The problems that humans have is based on our eco, uh, excuse me, economic status. And so economic equality is needed to address the disparity so that we can change human behavior by giving everyone the same things that they need monetarily. And I'll just submit one more because there's many, but another one is technological and scientific that we can alter human behavior through the use of technology and science. And certainly, medicine has also exploded over the last 50 years in terms of the good things that it can contribute to the lives of people and especially as they change. Now hear me at the beginning. Those are views that God has given to the world that are wonderful gifts. We all benefit from education and psychology and therapy and uh, economic resources, technology and science. But I want to contrast this morning what the Apostle Paul is saying in the scripture that was read earlier in Ephesians 2 with this idea that human behavior changes when there is this term that the Bible calls new birth. So let's jump right into the text. The first verse, and by the way, uh, I, had, I had uh, Julie read the text in the New Living. This is the New International. So Paul begins, he's visited this church, and so he knows the folks, but he's really speaking in broad terms here. But he says, as for you, church, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now, already, Paul has alienated anyone who is outside of the Christian community because the Greeks and the Romans, they were well-steeped in philosophy, in education. They were those who had created great societies, and so this idea of being dead in transgressions and sins was not even on their radar. If there was a cynic in the church when this letter was read, they might have said, prove it. Prove it, Paul, because as we look at human nature, it is just biological. But the biblical understanding of the human condition always starts with the assumption that we are dead spiritually. There is something that is not alive in us that was created originally by God to have life. So we are spiritually dead corpses. It is not a pleasant image. In fact, today, <clears throat> I've rarely been to a memorial service where there is an open casket 
and we actually view a dead corpse. I saw that when I was a child and went to services because that was still part of tradition, but many of us have never even seen a dead corpse, and so it's not a pleasant image, but I believe Paul is using it to get our attention. We have all died of a disease, and the disease, Paul says, is sin. It's terminal, and all humanity is stricken with it. Amazing things that Paul is stating here that are going right up against the Greek and Roman philosophies and the philosophies that we live in today. Paul goes further. He describes two actions that result from our spiritual deadness. He says there are transgressions and there are sins. Again, two terms that have pretty much been removed from the American dictionary. The idea of transgression is the idea of trespass. Again, as Christians in the subculture, we know what it was to recite the Lord's Prayer. A few years ago, we said trespasses. Now we say sins because it's shorter and people don't fumble over the words. But it's a very biblical concept, obviously. And so to trespass was to take a false step into an area you shouldn't be. And to sin, obviously a huge theme in the scripture is basically to disregard the ways of God. So how can we be blamed if we are dead corpses? Paul in Ephesians 4.18, he's speaking of non-believers. He says they are darkened in their understanding. They are separated from the very life of God. Paul's giving us a clue in that verse that it is about life and death, spiritual death or spiritual life. Our attitudes and our actions result from the fact that we have this disease of sin. In other words, the Bible says we sin because we are dead spiritually. One flows out of the other. As I said, our society has long ago thrown out the idea of trespasses and sin as some mythological idea, and they certainly don't, it doesn't fit into the modern worldview of the nature of what a human being is. And yet they describe symptoms. But what Jesus wants to get at is the inherent illness, the cancer, the thing that has twisted and warped our own spirits. So he goes on to say in verse two, you used to live in these when you followed the ways of this world. So he's making a contrast. He's talking to a crowd that used to live one way, but obviously something had happened. He said, you used to live that way. And then he goes on to describe three things which are classical in a theological understanding of what sin is. The first one is, you followed the ways of this world. Theologically, this would be called world systems that are inherently opposed to the ways of God. We find this true, sadly, in some cultures. They're very closed off to the gospel. We find this in institutions where they are unjust and they perpetuate that injustice. 
it goes on and on in terms of the impact. There's economic disparity because people use money for their own self-gratification and materialism. There are areas of society where morality is rejected. In the Old Testament, we have a classic example in the time of the judges where this haunting phrase says, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the ways of the world, theologians would say, the three things are the world systems that are against God, the devil, and our own flesh. And so the next thing he goes after is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. What he's referring to in that place would be the devil, or the Bible uses Satan. Now again, whenever I preach this stuff, I just realize that that people are just like, really, you you really believe this stuff? That there is an actual devil and a satanic person that is influencing things in our own world? And I admit that I do. So if that's where you're at, though, and you have the difficult time holding on to that truth, please stay with me. Don't write me off as an uneducated person who just isn't in touch with the realities of the physical world today. The Bible is very aware that there are spiritual forces that are constantly surrounding us. Jesus himself often spoke of Satan and the present realities of demons in the world. Now be reminded that Satan is a fallen spiritual being. He does not have complete reign in this world, even though there are times we throw our hands up and we say, what in the world is going on? Christians don't look for a demon behind every tree. We're not pulling the rug up and saying, was that caused directly by Satan? But I like to summarize the whole idea of Satan is from 2 Corinthians 11:14. Paul said, Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. If you think the work of demons and the devil is like your favorite horror movie or horror series, that's the wrong concept. The Bible knows that Satan works through cultural systems and organizations, and he also comes as an angel of light because he knows he can seduce humanity. I'd like to recommend a book. If you've never read it, it's still a classic, and that's C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters. He gets into the whole idea that this is not a devil with horns and a pitchfork, but this is a devil that looks a lot like me. And that's what the Bible reiterates. Well, the third area is found in verse 3, We've looked at the world systems that are anti-God. We've looked at a devil who is the prince of darkness. Paul says, all of us also lived, notice past tense, you used to live among them at one time. And here's the third area. You used to gratify the cravings of your flesh. That's the third theological area describing the breadth of sin. It is... uh, You follow the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. The idea here is we go back to Genesis, if you'd put up the graphic. 
again, something the culture has thrown out years ago, that you actually believe that there was an Adam and Eve that made a choice against God. Paul is reiterating that God, what God made good, sin marred. The garden was intended to have perfect harmony and perfect communication between God and his people. And yet something interjected, this idea of flesh, this primal, physical, and I would add, temporal understanding of life. We are not animals. We are not subject to our physical wants and desires that we have to follow those. And so the Bible uses flesh in saying what God intended for good, we bring it back to just temporal. And we only think in terms of the moment when our body is screaming out for whatever it desires. Go back to verse three if you would. Because here's another concept that's difficult for modern minds. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We have to understand that when the Bible uses the term wrath, this is not our human understanding of someone who is emotionally unstable. Wrath is a very strong word when we think of it in terms of how humans interact. But when the Bible uses wrath, what it is referring to, it is God's just actions against sin and against evil. That is his wrath. He is not some parent that you don't understand their emotional status and when they come home, they go off the handle because they have a short fuse. Some of you were raised in homes like that where you cowered in fear of knowing the emotional temperature of your parents. This is not what the Bible is saying. God is not prone to the mix of emotions that we have as humans. He is very consistent in his just actions against evil and sin. And so rather than being unpredictable, God's justice is the most consistent thing that we can find in this world. Now, let's move to verse four. Finally, some good news after we brought the temperature in the room way down. Paul says, but because of God's great love for us. He who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Notice two character qualities that Paul gives us of God. His great love and his rich mercy. Our radical disease of sin required a radical remedy from God. And so this idea of going from a spiritual dead corpse to someone who is made alive with Christ is the heart of the gospel that the early apostles took and put out into the Greek and Roman world. Because Christianity is not about becoming a nicer, more educated person. As good as that is, the gospel is about raising the dead, you and me, so that we can be made alive 
in Christ Jesus. What God is doing is he is restoring humans to our original wholeness and what he intended. Again, we are not just physical animals that are prone to following our own sinful ways, but made alive with Jesus transforms us into the thing that God originally intended, a whole person who is physical, yes, we never lose that part of our being. However, when we are born of the Spirit, now those two things are tied together. And so Paul completes this section by saying, it is by grace, it is by grace, it's by grace that you have been saved. This is another concept that wasn't in the Greek and Roman understanding. So a God of great love, a God of great mercy, now is a God of grace. And Paul is saying, you have received what you did not deserve. The most powerful word in our understanding of being made alive in Christ. Well, let me see if I can apply this in a way that will hopefully help all of us. One of the phrases about conversion when I was a kid that was very popular was Jesus saves. Jesus saves. In fact, a lot of churches in the 30s, 40s, and 50s had this on the top of their church building. You can occasionally find this. There's a few left in the Seattle area. And again, it just seems like, to, I'm sure to the modern mind, well, first of all, Jesus saves. The natural question is, saves from what? I don't need saving from anything. I'm got everything I need, I'm on a path and a career in my own life, I'm all settled. Why in the world would I pay attention to Jesus saves? And we have to realize that phrase is part of our subcultural conversation. But it's very biblical. In Acts chapter four and verse 12, Peter and John were in front of the Jewish authorities and they said this in the moment they had a chance to speak, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to humankind by which we must be saved. John and Peter are using this same language in front of the religious leaders of their day. And they're getting at this whole idea. Your view of human nature is wrong. You're dead and you need life that can only happen from the saving work of Christ. Another Christianese term happened in the 70s. President Jimmy Carter was one who popularized the term born again. Again, right out of John chapter three. I remember being in college, uh, post-college during those years and the media and the culture had a heyday with this. It's like the president, born again Christian, and Jimmy was a Southern Baptist. I just listened to his memoirs uh, on, on a CD driving down here because I got a lot of time on my drive. 
It's a wonderful book if you want to see his memoirs and reflections of his entire life. But Jimmy Carter is still born again. And he's figured out not how, how to not keep that into some culturally irrelevant, hidden thing in some Baptist church in the South, but he's learned how to take that faith and radically change the world. If you don't know much about his life, he has done more in the years after his four years in the presidency because of that. So Jimmy Carter popularized it. And then there was another individual that was on the other end of the political spectrum, one of Richard Nixon's hatchet men, Chuck Colson. And Chuck Colson was convicted in the Watergate scandal. He was sent to prison, and in prison, he was born again. And he titled his book, Born Again. And another radical change happened in his life where he didn't just say, I got my salvation, you need to go find yours. But because he had spent time in prison, God changed his heart towards inmates. And he realized our prisons needed to be changed from inside out. So he started a ministry called Prison Fellowship, which exists to this day, sending men and women into prison to share the good news of Jesus. And so here's two terms, Jesus saves and born again. And I remember I even had friends that looked at me and said, oh, you're one of those born agains, was kind of the, the derogatory slur of that. And now, most recently, we probably hear this more than any, or at least I do, and these are all good terms. The last 20 years, are you a devoted Christ follower? Because I think that term encompasses the breadth of what Paul is addressing in this passage. We know that the story of the disciples was Jesus simply walked by and said, leave what you're doing and just begin following me and you'll figure it out along the way. That was his method of discipleship. Follow after me. So, whenever the Bible uses Jesus saves or born again or Christ follower, it's all referring to what we've seen of being made new in Christ Jesus. This is unique to the Christian faith. This is unique to the Christian worldview, that something within us is dead, something within us needs to be made alive, and it's a precious thing, because this is the message that the world needs to hear. Education, science, technology, monetary equality, psychology are all good things. Please hear me but none of those things will get and touch the dead corpse that is inside of all of us. And this is a holistic view of salvation. It isn't just one time, praise God I got saved, or praise God I'm born again. The theological term for this, and put this up, I have been saved in the past. Some of you remember a point in time where you gave your life to Jesus and you hold on to that as a precious time when the gospel made sense. 
But there's others of you who didn't have a point-in-time conversion. And so for you, your understanding of the gospel happened over time, and you wouldn't be able to give a date, and that is fine. But in either case, you're saying, I have been saved. Theologically, it's called regeneration. But the writings of the apostles tell us that we are constantly being saved. And that's theologically called sanctification. That's the work, once we are made alive in Christ, now we have an understanding of the ways of God that we didn't have when we were dead, and so it makes sense that we are continuing to be saved. And here's the greatest promise. Someday, by God's grace, I will be saved. The glorification of the sons and daughters of Jesus Christ that will ultimately happen and culminate when we see Jesus face to face. One of my favorite texts along this line is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16. Paul says this, therefore we do not lose heart Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. That's where the apostle brings all of this together. My physical body is wasting away. But for those who have been born again in Christ Jesus, there is something inside of us that is being renewed day by day. When our bodies betray us, when physically our bodies tell us our time on this planet is done, the corollary is there is something in our spirit that is closer to Jesus than we have ever been in our entire existence. And that is the glory of salvation. That is the glory of being born again. That is the glory of being saved. One of the quotes from one of my professors, Gordon Fee at Regent, getting saved has to do with faith in Christ, but also includes faithfulness to Christ. Our Lord did not say go and make converts, but go and make disciples. Because in the long run, only disciples are converts. Dr. Fee is getting at that whole idea. I have been saved, I am being saved, and by God's grace, I will be saved. So the bottom line this morning is, what is your relationship to God's offer of salvation? Does this sound like archaic language that you'd hear from some televangelist? as you're spinning the TV dial? What is your relationship to God's offer of salvation? Is something sparked in you because you have been born again? You are the only one that can welcome Jesus and accept his invitation of spiritual rebirth. No doctor can do that, no professor, no scientist, no economist, no psychologist. Only our Lord Jesus can take a dead person and make them alive in Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer?
Jesus, we long to be more made in your image, to be more in tune with the ways of God and the Spirit of God, and have less of our flesh, less of our temporal understanding of our bodily needs. May we plunge fully into our understanding of the depths of salvation, how wide and how deep, how high and how long is the love of God and the grace and mercy that are in Christ Jesus. Draw each of us closer to the place where you live because of our time with you this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.